Hello, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, but sometimes we watch horror-adjacent movies selected by our patrons over on Patreon. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am excited and apprehensive about this bonus episode. Ah, yes, that makes sense. Um, We'll maybe talk a bit about our personal histories with this movie in a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, We are recording this a week away from our Scream Scene Halloween party that we throw at Castle Scream Scene every year. Uh, So the, the clock is ticking on the way to Halloween, and this episode is... You know, our regular bonus episode for the month, but it's also part of a whole variety of Halloween treats that you can listen to over on our Patreon. We do these horror-adjacent bonus episodes once a month thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash Podcast, where folks can also vote for what movie we will watch each month. And this time... Folks voted for The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad from 1949. Yeah, so this is a Disney movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a Disney movie you and I have seen before. Yes. Um, I think that for people in a certain generation, they mostly encounter this movie as one of its two parts, which I'm going to address uh, later in the program. Uh, But this movie is made up of a segment based on The Wind in the Willows and a segment based on The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And of course, it is The Legend of Sleepy Hollow segment that gives this the horror-adjacent feel. I don't know, man. Uh, Mr. Toad really does show the horror of the aristocracy. (laughs) 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 The Legend of Sleepy Hollow segment... Um, I don't know if they do this anymore because I have no idea what like terrestrial television is like anymore. <laughs> that makes but... it sound like we're aliens. <laughs> you could just say cable. <laughs> Broadcast television. Um, but it for a long time, ABC would usually run Legend of Sleepy Hollow as like a Halloween thing. Yeah, I saw it on the Family Channel, which Mm. was the Disney Channel in Canada. Basically, yeah. Um, I don't think Disney owns Family Channel, but Family Channel just like imports a lot of Disney Channel programming. No, they own it. Do they own it? Because Mm. they wouldn't show any commercials, and so everything would end early, and then they would show bonus Disney content. It was Mm. just all Disney all the time, not Mm. even toy commercials. Okay. I seem to remember non-Disney things being on Family Channel, but you know what? It doesn't matter. It was probably stuff Disney bought. (laughs) Sure. So there's, you know, an association of Legend of Sleepy Hollow with Halloween. Had you seen the legend? Like you grew up seeing the Legend of Sleepy Hollow segment, as you just said. Yeah, I didn't see the Wind in the Willows segment until we sat down to watch the whole movie. Yeah. So we watched the whole movie together because we were like, going through like all the Disney movies um, or something like that at the time. And I had grown up, like I had seen both segments of this before. I had actually never seen 
the complete film with them both together until I watched it with you. But I had also grown up with um, The Wind in the Willows as a television series on PBS. Mm. They imported a British TV series, which I think is a BBC show, but it could have been like ITV or something like that. Um, But it was stop motion animated. And it had a very like melancholic, nostalgic kind Mm -hmm. of vibe. Um, And was, yeah, this, this stop motion animation And that was kind of what I was more familiar with, with The Wind in the Willows. Wind in the Willows kind of has the same, for me, vibe as the original Winnie the Pooh books, like the A.A. Milne books, kind of before Disney got a hold of them, um, or stuff like The Velveteen Rabbit. That kind of like, this is... Paddington Bear. Well, not quite Paddington Bear. um, Because what I'm specifically talking about is like these children's books that have like, that are like wistful, fun, sort of like goofy nonsense children's stories. But that like, if you scratch the surface just a little bit, they all seem like really sad somewhere (laughs) underneath, like this kind of, um, sure. Nostalgia sad where it's like about longing for a simpler time or something like that. Absolutely. Um, but anyways, we watched this movie, the, the complete version together and you just couldn't stand the Wind in the Willows section. Here's the thing. I couldn't stand Mr. Toad. Mm. The other animals were just fine. I grew up watching Redwall. I like watching an- animals be anthropomorphized. Right. With British accents. Yeah. Yeah. You could not stand Mr. Toad, who is, you know, the main character. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, yeah. So, like... <laughs> It was such a tough watch because um, I think the Wind in the Willow segment comes first. Comes first and it's slightly longer. Yeah. So like, as I alluded to earlier, uh, for a long time, the two segments of this movie were actually like split up. They were even theatrically re-released split up, which I'll talk about more later. So there are versions of this where if you just want to watch legend of sleepy hollow, like you can like Disney edited a version that just stands on its own. So I found it very funny that when you made the choices for the October bonus episode, you didn't decide to be like legend of sleepy hollow. You were like, not adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad to subject yourself once more (laughs) to Mr. Toad. Well, sometimes, you know, having context around a thing makes me appreciate it more. And having that on the the list to to watch for the podcast would mean doing research about the author and stuff. So I thought maybe I'll I'll get some better appreciation. Uh, But also, I know what the people want. (laughs) And the people want me yelling. Got it. (laughs) Your reaction to Mr. Toad reminds me of that story about Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey on the set of Batman Forever, where like Jim Carrey got this vibe that like Tommy Lee Jones didn't like him and he couldn't understand why. And he finally like asked Tommy Lee Jones, like, like, do you not like me? Like, what's your problem, man? And Tommy Lee Jones told Jim Carrey, Sir, I cannot sanction your buffoonery. <laughs> and and that feels like your relationship with Mr. Toad. You cannot sanction his buffoonery. It's, we'll get into this in the episode. Sure. But it's his complete, 
disregard for anyone but his own dalliances of what is like obsessed what, what am i obsessed with right now who cares about losing fucking toad hall who cares about running someone over with this automobile what about flying a fucking biplane you don't have a license mr toad you can barely wear pants why is this supposed to be funny when you're just wasting the money that could go into the fucking community what I love about this is like <laughs> you aren't wrong. Like yeah. you've, you've accurately identified like exactly what Toad's whole deal is. It's just that like that is supposed to be read for humor, and you instead are like far too upset about like the socioeconomic injustices of like their little parish or whatever. Um, yeah. To let it be funny for you, which I think is is really quite um, charming. Oh, well, I'm glad you think it's charming. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to start off sort of assuming that our listeners are familiar with the Walt Disney Corporation. Like a lot of times on Scream Scene, you know, if it was the first time we were covering a movie from a certain studio, I might be like, you know, Walt Disney was born in such and such town in such and such year, and here's his biography and how he grew up and how he met Ub Iwerks and how they did Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and Mickey Mouse and all this stuff and et cetera. But even our listeners in other countries know Disney at this point. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on Walt himself. What I will do is give some contextualization of like where the Disney Corporation was at when this film was made. So... The important thing to understand is like Disney in 1949 was not the behemoth it is today. Walt Disney was still alive, uh, for one thing, and Disney wasn't even really its own studio at that time. It was more like what we would now call a production company. Um, Disney made cartoon shorts, they made animated features, um, but they did not distribute their own films, RKO distributed Disney's films during this period, uh, including this movie. And the other thing to know about Disney in the late 40s was like, they were in financial trouble. They were treading water. Um, Snow White was their first feature film, of course, in 1937, after years of doing shorts. And it was a huge hit. But after Snow White, three of the next five Disney films were financial failures. Partially, due to Walt's like high standards and ambitions kind of outpacing what audiences wanted. Um, and also partially due to a costly animator strike in 1941. And then also partially due to World War II in 1939, cutting off the European market uh, from Disney. And Disney's always been very popular in Europe. So after the financial failure of Bambi in 1941, Disney's financiers at the Bank of America would no longer give the studio money for feature films. Um, they basically said, you cannot start production on any new features. If you have stuff that's in like the middle of production, you can finish it. But otherwise, you need to make shorts until you've made enough money to pay back all your loans from us, and then you can make features again. And so the company had to focus on the popular short cartoon series and several in-development features like Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland, uh, among others, 
were put on hold. The entry of the United States into World War II at the end of 1941 saved the company, really, uh, when they were contracted to produce propaganda cartoons for the U.S. military. The United States' good neighbor policy with South America uh, to try and prevent South America from allying with the Nazis led to the Disney studio producing two South American-flavored feature films. However, these were both like low-budget themed anthology films with multiple short segments. So rather than being like one story, it was basically a package of shorts all on a similar theme, South American culture. After the end of the war, uh, the studio used this template for a series of three package films as a cheap and easy way to kind of ease back into feature film production. Uh, So these were short subject anthology movies. Re-releases of Snow White, Pinocchio, and Fantasia were also profitable, helping the company back onto its feet. Additionally, uh, Disney did two films which were like a hybrid of live action and animation, Mm. Song of the South and So Dear to My Heart, which were sort of like cheaper than doing a full animated movie, but also kind of were testing grounds for Disney to move into fully live action production, which it mm-hmm. wouldn't do until the 50s. Which included uh, kind of like preparing that one little boy to mm. become like the star of the studio because he yes. would eventually do like the... Uh, Bobby Driscoll, yeah. yeah. He's um, the lead in Treasure Island. Yeah, and, and he's, he's the voice of Peter Pan, right? That's right, yes. So the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad actually began production as early as 1938, originally as a feature film adaptation of The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. If this started production in 1938, that would have only been six years after Graham passed away from old age. So that's that kind of makes sense then for like the timing of this. Kenneth Graham was born in 1859 in Edinburgh, um, and he would write Wind in the Willows in 1908, and was kind of like the last thing he wrote. He Hmm. doesn't actually have a huge bibliography. Now, because this horror-adjacent episode is kind of focused on Sleepy Hollow, I'm not going to go into any further detail, uh, but if you do want to hear all of that, that will be available as bonus content on our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast. So the idea of adapting Wind in the Willows as a Disney film uh, was presented to Walt by a couple of his animators in 1938 who figured that basically animation was the only way to go with Wind in the Willows because of the anthropomorphic animals. Like how else were you going to make that into a movie? But also the nostalgia thing is pretty key to what Disney always was going for. Yes. But interestingly, uh, Walt was skeptical of the idea from the beginning He actually worried that it would be too corny, which is a wild thing from (laughs) Disney to say. Yeah. um, Given Disney's like whole deal. Yeah. But part of me wonders if it's because Disney's nostalgia brand is for American nostalgia. Yes. That was the thing that really surprised me about Wind in the Willows. I understand why Adapt Sleepy Hollow, like it's a very American story, which I will get into, but Kenneth Graham and Wind, Wind in the Willows is very British. Mm-hmm. So I, I was really hoping to hear like why, 
how was he convinced to adapt this British thing? Yeah. And that, you know, essential Britishness is why like there was criticism of Mm. Disney's version in Britain and why like, I think a lot of people think of the stop motion animated uh, Wind in the Willows from the 80s as being like more true to the spirit of the novel and stuff like that. But yeah, Disney was like not really sold on the idea. Um, But, you know, Walt, in addition to being a um, like storyteller, right, and creative visionary. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, you got it. So even though he wasn't sure if it would work, he bought the rights anyway, just so that, you know, no one else was going to go and do it while he was humming and hawing about it, right? Production began in earnest in April of 1941 after production wrapped on Bambi under the direction of James Algar, who had worked as a sequence director for Fantasia, Bambi, and Victory Through Air Power. And then in October of 1941, the Bank of America pulled the plug on feature film production at Disney uh, following the animator strike. So interestingly, because Wind in the Willows already had sequences animated, like it was in production, technically it fit under the loophole that Bank of America had given Disney, which was like, if you're in the middle of something, you can finish the something. You just can't start anything new. So they couldn't start on like Peter Pan or Alice in Wonderland because they were just in development, but actual like production hadn't started yet. So they could have kept going on Wind in the Willows, but Walt didn't like the footage that had already been completed. He felt it wasn't really up to snuff, wasn't really worth putting the money into. And like, I think he was, you know, afraid after three out of five feature films had bombed at the box office. Like why keep putting money into this thing? You're not sure about only to see it bomb too. Right. Makes sense. So they shelved it and it did not start production again until 1946 Uh, with Frank Thomas, one of Disney's top animators, known as the Nine Old Men, uh, taking over to produce new sequences in order to complete the film. However, Disney now saw it as being like a short rather than a feature, and he stipulated that, like, the movie could not be more than 25 minutes. Um, So That's a lot of condensing. Yes. Meanwhile, in December of 1946, quite separately... Production started on a new animated feature film, an adaptation of Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, an adaptation of anything from Irving makes total sense for Disney. Mm -hmm. Total sense. This is like, I feel like Washington Irving's like the guy who like invented being nostalgic for America. Yeah, absolutely. I am going to ask you a question though, Ben. Mm -hmm. Um, What do the New York Knicks... Gotham and Rip Van Winkle all have in common. Well, okay. One of these I'm surprised about, but I'm going to guess Washington Irving created all of them. Basically. Yeah. They all come from the same guy who did Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. Um, So Washington Irving was born in 1783 in Manhattan and he was so named Washington because he was born on the week that New Yorkers learned that the um, British had done a ceasefire and the Americans had won the revolution. Damn. I didn't know he was born like at that time. Yeah. That's wild. And also explains a lot. (laughs) So he was born into a merchant family and his brothers would go into the family business or start their own businesses. But Irving preferred to write. Hey, listen, 
when you're from a well-off family and you're not the eldest son, you've got like some wiggle room on what you can do with your life. Which would be to write and go to the theater. Ah. Uh, now, Irving was a bit of a sickly kid. So uh, when Yellow Fever came to Manhattan in 1798 and he was age 15, he was sent to a small town upstate uh, to go live with some family friends as Yellow Fever blew over. And so this would be in Terrytown. Oh my God, I didn't know that. <laughs> now, do you know anything about Terrytown? Um, so Terrytown is the setting of Legend of Sleepy Hollow, for one thing. Yes. Um, it's like a small town north of Manhattan. It's in, I want to say, Gainsboro. And like Sleepy Hollow, like the actual hollow is like a little bit north of like Terrytown proper. And it's like some old town that like now is like, I'm pretty sure is like all just sort of urban development. Like it doesn't exist really (laughs) as its own thing anymore. Like it does officially, but like if you were not from there, you couldn't tell <laughs> kind of thing. No, it's definitely still a small town. Yeah. Um, like under 10,000 people. Yeah. Um, it's today considered uh, one of the, if not mo- the most safest small town in America, mm. which is wild. And yeah, as you said, there is a small glen that's basically considered part of the town that's called Sleepy Hollow. Terrytown was settled by the Dutch near the Catskill Mountains. These are things that will come up later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of these, when you're saying them, have like um, like a little... like <laughs> Hyperlink to yeah, each thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or a little footnote. Yeah. When he was 19, Irving, uh, Irving started sending in letters to magazines to comment on uh, the literary or social or theater scene, but this is all done under the pseudonym Jonathan Old Style. <laughs> <laughs> wow. How do I comment but not let them know I'm 19? I just like that he's announcing, like, like th- <laughs> there was never a time when Washington Irving was, like, into the things of the day like here he is like as a 19 year old being like i like old-fashioned stuff like this is like when you run into a college kid who dresses in like a fedora and trench coat like all the time and like you know it just like loves old movies (laughs) so he went to europe for a time in his early 20s because he was a sick kid (laughs) <laughs> and they were like, oh, go to Europe. It's it's better there or something. And he got really into like the social scene, meeting his contemporaries and, and so on. Uh, when he came back to New York, he was like kind of told like, okay, but now you got to, you know, do you something. backpacked through Europe. You right. got to come do something with your life. So yeah. he was like, okay, I'll go study law. He barely passed the bar exam uh, and decided, nope, not for me. I want to write. In 1807, he and his friends started a magazine called Selma Gundy, which was a uh, magazine for satire, kind of like a mad magazine style thing. Um, And this is when uh, the slang term for New York of Gotham got started, uh, which means um, is like an Anglo-Saxon term for Goatstown. Yes. So that's where Gotham started. Yeah. Gotham, goat, ham... Yeah. Ham is in Hamlet. Yeah. But it's all from Washington Irving. Yes. Which means he is, you know, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing to Batman. Yes. Um, do you know who uh, or what uh, Diedrich Knickerbocker 
is. So, so here's my problem with a lot of American history stuff. <laughs> um, I can never remember what's fact and what's like bullshit cutesy bullshit made up like a hundred years later because Amazing. so much of American history is like, oh, Benjamin Franklin invented electricity by tying a kite to a key. And then like you find out that that's just like something that some guy made up for like a satirical article in like the mid 1800s. And then everyone thought that was brilliant and just repeated it forever. Like so much of American history is that. So I think Diedrich Knickerbocker was like a dude who wore like a particular style of pants that basically got like named after him, right? Like Knickerbocker <laughs> pants. And then like those style of pants became popular with like baseball players. <laughs> no. Okay. I'm way off. Um, so Dietrich Knickerbocker is a pseudonym of Washington Irving. Oh, that's son of a bitch. Uh, so named because of the style of pants, also called knickers. Under this name, in 1809, Irving published a book called A History of New York from the Beginning to the End of the Dutch Dynasty. Hmm. Now, it's a very, like, satirical book. So so Diedrich Knickerbocker is meant to sound like a Dutch name, like, to give it, like, credibility. Yeah. Okay. Um, But also, the way he marketed this is fucking hilarious. Okay. He put an ad into the magazine on behalf of, like this fake Knickerbocker family being like, have you seen Diedrich? He's gone missing since going to Manhattan. Uh, he was last seen at this hotel. And then on behalf of the hotel putting out like, which is a fictional hotel, um, putting out like a, have you seen this man? He left without signing out. And all we have is, is this manuscript. So he made an ARG marketing campaign for yeah. his book. Yeah. And the the hotel, the fake hotel, was like, if we don't hear from him, we're just going to publish this manuscript <laughs> to get money back for the nights he stayed here. Yeah, like hotels do. Yeah. Publishing manuscripts. But people were like, what is going on? Who is Diedrich Knickerbocker? <laughs> and like going like, well, what is this manuscript? Is it salacious? What is going on? Now, when you say he posted these ads in the magazine, you mean like the magazine that he was already running, Selma Gundy? And others. Okay, okay. Like like newspapers. Got it. It was a big hit. And um, because this was a Manhattanite who had gone missing, the phrase Knickerbocker became a nickname for Manhattanites. And the New York basketball team took that as their name, the Knickerbockers, also known as the Knicks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wild. Wild. So Washington Irving served in the War of 1812, um, and while he did all right, uh, the war was bad for the family business. So he left back to Europe to try to like work and get money to basically save the family business. During this time, though, he began publishing a periodical in 1819 called The Sketchbook of Geoffrey Crayon, Gentleman, yet another pseudonym, and this Basically, uh, it was published in the U.S. and the U.K. simultaneously because of copyright stuff, and it had multiple installments. So it wasn't just like a periodical thing. It was like, you know, first volume, second volume. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. The first installment included the story of Rip Van Winkle. Mm -hmm. 
uh, who, if you're not familiar, is a guy who goes out hunting, meets up some, with some weird Dutch people, drinks their beer, falls asleep, and wakes up and it's like 20 years later. He has a big long beard and, uh, oh yeah, he's gone hunting in the Catskill Mountains. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to stop you for a second. Yeah? For anyone who doesn't know this, because Sarah's made a lot of references already, before New York was part of the United States of America, it was a Dutch colony called New Amsterdam. So it's important for Washington Irving's like whole fucking deal for you to understand that Dutch people lived in New York before like English settlers. He is obsessed with the Dutch. Well, this is the thing about Rip Van Winkle that I didn't really understand as a kid. Because you, you get the Rip Van Winkle story when you're a kid, like it's a children's story or people treat it as such. But like the, the point of the story is it's supposed to be a story about like, oh, this guy from Dutch times like slept until modern day times. And now he's like all out of touch with current day. Well, no, he falls asleep and it is 20 years later, but he wakes up and the Revolutionary War has already gone over. Mm. So when he goes to town, he doesn't really know anyone. No one knows him. And they ask him like, well, who are you? And he's like, well, I'm a proud citizen of King George. And they're like, oh. Yeah. And like the thing was when you, when I was a kid, I didn't really understand that Rip Van Winkle was like a weird nostalgia story about like a man out of time. Like I got that it was about like, you know, he fell asleep for a hundred years or whatever, but like it's 20, but yeah. But like when you're a kid, like the difference between like 1760 something and 1780 something is, is nothing. Yeah. The hook for the story is just that he fell asleep for a really long time but like those like social things that he's commenting on like go completely over your head it's weird to think of people from olden day times (laughs) who are nostalgic for oldener day times you know Mm -hmm. the sixth installment of this sketchbook of jeffrey crayon gentlemen included sleepy hollow okay now all of these installments Majority of these stories have like satire, some are comedic, like there's one that's called The Art of Bookmaking that describes bookmaking as like a recipe that you would do in, like and use in the kitchen. Got it. Okay. And they would have like spooky or f- spooky fairy tales that were eerily similar to some European fairy tales mm. since he is in Europe. Um, for example, Rip Van Winkle um, as I said, he, he drinks some Dutch wine, wakes up 20 years later. It's a very classic tale of uh, people helping fairies, getting wine, and then returning 20 years later um, sure. all across the continent. Right. Okay. Yeah. I see that. Notably, though, um, you know, I don't want to paint Irving as like just some plagiarizer kind of person because he's recontextualizing these classic fairy tales for a, an American setting and audience. Mm-hmm. Which is also kind of interesting that, no, he's doing all of this while he's in Europe and that feeling of nostalgia and missing home. Mm-hmm. As much as his audience, he's, you know, he's writing for Americans, he was quite popular in Europe as well, earning him the reputation of being an American upstart writing in English. <laughs> so Irving would publish other collections while in continental Europe, uh, going to Spain, and then... Um, When he returned to the U.S., he settled near Terrytown. During his time, in addition to, you know, being well known for his works, he fought for copyright, 
which at this time was very uh, wild and loose, depending on what side of the Atlantic you were on. He was admired by and encouraged other American authors like Edgar Allan Poe, Nate Hawthorne, etc. And I saw that Washington Irving has been noted as the first American author to earn his living solely by writing. Mm. But I've heard that said about Edgar Allan Poe, who came after. Mm. So what is the truth? (laughs) (laughs) But in any case, uh, Irving definitely earned his living by writing predominantly. I thought it was interesting to point out some things that he, other things that, that he did that impacted American culture. Yeah, that I absolutely. Think is interesting. Go for it. Um, so when he was writing some of the Christmas stories in this sketchbook that I, I mentioned earlier, he referred to the 1652 publication of The Vindication of Christmas, which had um, older English Christmas traditions, which made these traditions popular again in America and particularly popularized the idea of Santa's sleigh or wagon that would go on your roof Mm -hmm. during Christmas. In 1828, uh, actually later as well, he published two of these. Um, He did a very long biography of Christopher Columbus. Mm -hmm. Uh, This one was called The Life and Voyages. And then the other one that came later was like Life and Times, like whatever. Um, But it popularized the myth that medieval Europeans thought the earth was flat and that Christopher Columbus proved that it was round. That is not true. Yeah. Washington Irving is the reason why American school children grew up being taught Christopher Columbus was a hero when really he is like arguably history's greatest monster. Mm-hmm. Um but at the very least, uh, not a good navigator. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, exactly. Like the people who turned Chris Columbus's voyage down, like as financiers, was not because like, oh, they were, they couldn't see his vision. It was because like they all recognized that he was like an incompetent con artist. Yeah. Yeah. So Washington Irving was loved and appreciated as an author in the U.S. and in Europe, uh, as well as in social and literary circles alike. Uh, He died at age 76, just after completing the final and fifth volume of a George Washington biography. And he was buried in Terrytown, which I think it's also worth mentioning that um, we've seen sort of Terrytown before on the podcast. Okay. Um, It is where Oliver Reed and his family settle in uh, The Curse of the Cat People in 1944. Oh, yeah. uh, Which we covered in episode 115. And Terrytown officially changed their town name to Sleepy Hollow in 1996 for that tourism dollars. Weird. I'm pretty sure Washington Irving's biography of George Washington is also filled with like bullshit myths that aren't true that American school children grew up learning because that's just how American history works. Um, That's why I I was kind of laughing at um, when you were trying to figure out who Dietrich (laughs) Knickerbocker was. Yeah, I can't remember what specific bullshit myths um, Washington Irving came up with for George Washington, because I'm sure a lot of people did over time. Like, I don't know if he came up with like the cherry tree nonsense or the like never told a lie nonsense or like the wooden teeth nonsense. But there's a lot of nonsense that people believe about George Washington. I'm sure Washington Irving is responsible for some of it. He, He felt a kinship. Because of his name. Sure. Yeah. So The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, it was published in 1820, but it is set in 1790 in the spooky glen of Terrytown called Sleepy Hollow. 
Their forests are very thick and mysterious, uh, inundated with ghosts and spirits and possibly witches, or maybe there's a Native American curse for why there's a hub of mysterious supernatural occurrences here. It's spooky. Yeah. He literally says, like, the, maybe, like, the Native American witch doctor. Like, mm. he, he's just making shit up. Yeah. But anyways. Now, the most infamous of these ghouls is the Headless Horseman, who was a Hessian soldier who lost his head from a cannonball during the U.S. Revolutionary War. Yeah. Hessian being German soldiers fought for the British here on American soil. Yeah, they were like mercenaries. Yeah. Now, it's established, you know, this ghoul, when he appears, he can't cross the bridge by the old Dutch burial ground. And um, it follows Ichabod Crane, who is a school teacher, not Dutch, and has come into this Dutch town. He uh, makes himself agreeable to those he lodges with. He's a gossiper, basically a dandy, and he is um, a character foil to, uh, I guess I'll say, antagonist uh, Abraham von Brunt. He's also known as Brom Bones. <laughs> Who's basically like Dutch Gaston. Yeah, he's the town folk hero. He's burly, mischievous. He's a lovable prankster, that sort of thing. Now, both are after the hand of 18-year-old Katrina Van Tassel, the sole heir to her father's wealthy farm. Yeah, you know, the Van Tassels. They invented those things that twirl on the end of uh, burlesque performers' boobs. I think those were just tassels, That's and then they got used by burlesque dancers. <laughs> but but the von tassels invented them, is what I'm trying to tell you. So it's a harvest party, and Ichabod plans to propose to Katrina after the party ends, and he is rejected. So it's at night, he's riding his horse gunpowder uh, on his way home uh, very dejectedly, when suddenly he is chased by the headless horseman. Uh, who's carrying a jack-o'-lantern in place of his head and terrorizes him. Now, Ichabod remembers, oh, he can't cross the bridge, so let's try to get across the bridge. And the only thing that is found in the morning is a smashed jack-o'-lantern on the other side of the bridge, and Ichabod is nowhere to be found. Now, the story itself heavily implies that Brom is the horseman uh, scaring Crane off. But of course, the gossip of the town is that Crane was spirited away by supernatural means. Like Rip Van Winkle, you can trace some of these elements of a headless or ghostly horseman to European and specifically German folktales. And what's kind of interesting is like to Americanize it, uh, Irving refers to or builds his characters off of people he actually knew in the States. So... The school teacher is built off of an actual teacher in Terrytown. Uh, he knew an army captain whose name was Ichabod Crane. And the young woman, Katrina Van Tassel, is real. Just fully real. <laughs> Got it. Just a real person. Right. Yeah. Did ask for her permission, but I don't think gave the full story of how she was going to be depicted. Got but it. anyway, so that's Washington Irving and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Gotcha. So the Legend of Sleepy Hollow feature film from Walt Disney Pictures uh, that went into production in 1948 was to be co-directed by Jack Kinney and Clyde Geronimi. 
Kinney was born in Utah in 1909, and he attended high school in Los Angeles. He began at Disney in 1931 as an animator and worked his way up to becoming a director of shorts in 1940, primarily serving as the director of the Goofy series, of which he directed 39 entries from the 2nd to the 40th. Amazing. He uh, created the how-to Subseries oh, yeah. of Goofy Shorts. I yeah. love those. He also directed the satirical propaganda cartoon Der Fuhrer's Face, which won an Academy Award. He served as a sequence director on Pinocchio, The Reluctant Dragon, Dumbo, Saludos Amigos, Victory Through Air Power, The Three Caballeros, Make Mine Music, Fun and Fancy Free, and Melody Time. Clyde Geronimi was born Clito Geronimi in 1901 in Italy before immigrating to the United States as a young child. Initially, he worked as an animator for Walter Lance, working on the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoons for Universal that had originally been produced by Disney. In 1931, he left Lance for Disney, starting off as an animator and rising to director. His 1941 Pluto short, Lend a Paw, won an Academy Award, and he was a sequence director on The Three Caballeros, Make Mine Music, and Melody Time, and he would work as a supervising director on every Disney animated film of the 1950s, ending with 1961's 101 Dalmatians. Wow. So originally, the plan was to pair The Wind in the Willows with um, another short being produced called The Legend of Happy Valley as kind of a two-picture package film. But in 1947, uh, Legend of Happy Valley was actually released paired with another short called Bongo as Fun and Fancy Free. Meanwhile, Legend of Sleepy Hollow was not shaping up to be long enough to sustain a feature film. Uh, So it was paired with The Wind in the Willows under a theme of, like, classic literature uh, for the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. In March 1948, stars Basil Rathbone and Bing Crosby were signed to the film, showing that the celebrity voice actor trend stretches back quite far. (laughs) Rathbone was to narrate The Wind in the Willows, which otherwise would be filled out with a cast of English character actors for the voices. Bing Crosby, meanwhile, would narrate The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, voice Ichabod and Brom Bones, and sing three original songs. So, listener... If you don't know Bing Crosby, the thing to understand here is that Bing Crosby was, in 1946, a huge star. Mm -hmm. He was a singer and an actor. He made over 70 feature films and recorded over 1,600 songs in a career that saw him consistently popular from 1926 to 1977. In 1948, it was estimated that half of all songs played on the radio in America were Bing Crosby songs. He was instrumental in raising the quality of audio recording and radio production by insisting that his records and shows be produced to the same high standards as the Hollywood films that he acted in. Born Harris Lillis Crosby Jr. in 1903 in Tacoma, Washington, he was raised in Spokane, the fourth of seven children. As a child, he was nicknamed Bingo, which was eventually shortened to Bing. In 1923, he began performing with local bands around Spokane as a vocalist, leaving for California in 1925 to seek fame and fortune. He worked gigs and developed his performing style, which was popular with college students. He recorded his first song in 1926, and his first number one hit was in 1928 with a jazz version of Old Man River. 
1930, he was popular as a solo act. And in 1931, he got his first radio show and began producing lots of hit singles. Uh, 10 of the top 50 songs of 1931 were Bing Crosby songs. (laughs) He signed with Paramount for a series of three musical comedies a year, starting with 1934's The Big Broadcast. In the middle of the Depression, Bing's sales more or less saved the record business when he signed to Decca Records in 1934 um, and basically agreed to a scheme whereby Decca would lower the price of singles from a dollar to 34 cents and Bing would take a royalty on each record sold rather than be paid a flat fee, which then like completely changed how recording artists are paid. Yeah. Crosby's vocal style was like unique when he started because he took advantage of the development of microphone technology. Um, The previous generation of hit singers like Al Jolson were known as belters because they were like trained to sing to like the back row in like a New York music hall without microphone or speaker technology. Um, Crosby was singing into a microphone on the radio or on records. And so he was able to develop like this quiet, smooth, conversational kind of singing style. He invented what is now called the crooner style of singing. Crosby also used his star power to lift up marginalized voices, such as insisting that Louis Armstrong co-star with him in 1936's Pennies from Heaven at equal billing to the white performers. Beginning in December of 1941, Crosby's greatest hit, White Christmas, dominated airwaves. The song has sold over 50 million copies (laughs) and is the world's best-selling single on physical media. But where does it rank on the Hark podcast? That's a great question. If you would like to know the answer, you should check out uh, the Hark holiday music podcast, Uh, which you can find at Jingle Horse. Wait, no. What is it? Jingle.horse as a web domain? Harkpodcast.com is their main domain, but they also own the domain (laughs) Jingle.horse. Bing Crosby and his White Christmas from 1947 ranks number six on the Hark Holiday Music Podcast. Which has a ton of songs. Like, that's under, like... Like, that's out of what? Like, 500 songs? 638. My word. Yeah, that's a one... What? The one at the very bottom is Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, rap version, by Dr. Elmo and Bling Crosby. Amazing. Uh, Yeah, that's a really wonderful show um, starring Jam and Ian. Uh, And if you have not heard it uh it's this show but for christmas music yeah so um you mentioned 1947 there so the original recording of white christmas was in 1942 Mm -hmm. but in 1947 he had to re-record it with the same musicians and backup singers because the 1942 master had been worn out from so many single pressings (laughs) that it was too damaged to continue to be used wow 
From 1940 to 1962, Crosby starred with Bob Hope and Dorothy L'Amour in the highly influential buddy comedy Road Pictures. He won the Academy Award for Best Actor in 1945 for Going My Way, where he portrayed the role of Catholic priest Father O'Malley. And he was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actor for its 1946 sequel, The Bells of St. Mary's. Mm Mm-hmm. He recorded 41 number one hits in his career, and he charted every year from 1931 to 1957. He sang four Academy Award-winning songs, including White Christmas. By tickets sold, he was the third most popular actor of all time behind Clark Gable and John Wayne as of the year 2000. His investments in a wide variety of businesses ensured that he would remain wealthy even if his popularity ever waned, which it never did. For example, he made an entire fortune's worth of money alone as one of the principal stockholders of the Minute Maid Juice Corporation. (laughs) His insistence on high production quality and the value of his time as a performer encouraged the technological development of magnetic tape recording. You see... Back in the old days of radio, you would have to perform your show twice. Yeah. Once for the West Coast and once for the East Coast. And Bing Crosby was like, I'm Bing Crosby. I ain't got time for that. And insisted that they record his East Coast performance and then just play that on the West Coast. And then when television became a thing in the 1950s, he encouraged the development of videotape recording technology for the same reason. So they didn't have to do the same show twice. He was a founding partner in the Del Mar Thoroughbred Horse Racing Club. He owned 25% of the Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team and, like, was super emotionally invested in their success. He was a famous golfer. He began a Pro-Am tournament in 1937 that still survives today as the famous Pebble Beach Pro-Am. His relationship with his first wife, Dixie Lee, from 1930 to her death of ovarian cancer in 1952, was severely strained because of Dixie's severe alcoholism. He considered divorcing her uh, at several points. Um, He also had affairs here and there, uh, but he ended up not ever divorcing her due to his Catholic faith. Um, I think the closest he ever got, um, like a friend of his told him, like, you can't get divorced your father O'Malley Mm. basically Uh, he struggled a lot with needing to be like away from home for his career but also kind of for his own mental health to be away from his wife who was like a very difficult person to be around but then also he had a desire to be home more because he wanted to protect his kids from his wife on the other hand Crosby has a pretty notorious reputation as an abusive father who beat his children due to the memoir of his eldest son which contains recollections which are disputed by his other children Um, though none deny he was a strict disciplinarian and quite frankly the description of him as being kind of like cold and you know disciplining his children through like corporal punishment is just sort of not abnormal for a parent in the middle of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Anyways, he passed away in 1977 at 74 years old. So all of which is to say like Bing Crosby was a big deal in 1948 for like Disney to get for this movie. 
The songs in Legend of Sleepy Hollow were written by popular songwriters Don Rain and Gene DePaul and performed by Bing Crosby and his regular backup vocalists, the Rhythmares. Meanwhile, the songs in the Wind in the Willows segment were written by standard Disney songwriters Larry Morey, Ray Gilbert, Frank Churchill, and Charles Wolcott. And the film's score was written by Oliver Wallace, who was also a regular Disney contributor. So we can kind of see, like, basically Bing got to bring in his own song people yeah, for his songs. Yeah, he's a big deal. Exactly. Uh, Pinto Kolvig, who is best known as the original voice of Goofy, voices Brahms Horse, while Clarence Nash, best known as the original voice of Donald Duck, voices Ichabod's Horse. The voice of the Headless Horseman is Billy Bletcher, best known as the voice of Pete, uh, Mickey Mouse's nemesis. The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad was released on October 5th, 1949 by RKO. So a nice October release there. It received mixed reviews from critics. Uh, some loved the Wind in the Willows segment and disliked the Sleepy Hollow segment, such as Life and Time magazines. Variety liked both, but felt that Wind in the Willows was more suited to adult audiences, while Legend of Sleepy Hollow was for all audiences. Really? That's wild. The New York Times praised the whole thing uh, equally. And I think like over the years, there's been sort of like shifts of which segment people like better. Um, The film was financially successful, and it was the last of the package films that Disney put out before returning to like true feature films with 1950s Cinderella. In 1955, the film was first divided in two to air as two separate episodes of the Disneyland TV program. Mild edits were made to both halves in order to enable them to like stand on their own. And this was how both segments were shown for the next like 35 years or so. Legend of Sleepy Hollow was re-released to theaters as an independent short in 1963, while Wind in the Willows received the same treatment in 1978. The two were also presented this way in their 1980s home video releases. The complete film didn't reappear in its original form until a VHS release in 1992. It was then released on DVD in 2000, Blu-ray in 2014, and streaming on Disney Plus in 2019. Hmm. Well, Ben, we don't have Disney Plus. How are we watching this? Well, you can also rent the film on Apple iTunes, Google Play Music, the Microsoft Store, YouTube, basically all of your standard um, online video rental places. Ah, Okay. Well, folks, hopefully uh, you have access to one of those services and you can watch along to The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad from 1949, directed by James Elgar, Clyde Geronimi, and Jack Kinney. See you on the other side, everyone. Oh, 
Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad from 1949, directed by James Elgar, Clyde Geronimi, and Jack Kinney. Though, uh, in the credits, Jack Kinney is listed first. Ben, what did you think? Uh, I mean, this is like the third time I've seen this movie, um, like at least in its complete form. I'm sure I've seen The Legend of Sleepy Hollow segment on its own like more times i thought it was fine um these are some fun cartoons um they are a good time i think that legend of sleepy hollow is funnier than wind of the willows but i think wind of the willows has some good little gags in it do you think that's because it's so british no i think like the reason i find legend of sleepy hollow funnier is that the Wind in the Willows segment sort of feels like they don't really have a good handle on the material. Mm. Um, they seem mostly interested in side characters. Like to me, the characters that come across as having the most like personality are like Clyde the horse and like Winky. Cyril. Cyril. Yeah. Cyril the horse. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Cyril the horse. I think Cyril's very offended now. Yes, probably would be. Uh, and like Winky, mm-hmm. but not like the main characters. And it feels like they've tried to make a bunch of little changes to try and like get more gags out of it, but they kind of fall flat. Mm. Like, um, I'm pretty sure Badger in the book isn't mac badger like a weird over-the-top scottish stereotype yeah yeah and so it's just like oh we'll have someone do a scots accent because that's really funny but then like the guy doing the voice isn't even doing like a good job like it's (laughs) it's it's sub jimmy doohan level scottish accent sure we don't speak ill of jimmy doohan in this household no we, we do not yeah i you know wind in the willows is what it is have you built up a tolerance for Mr. Toad oh, by now? Oh, God, no. Okay. God, it's just... I'll go into more detail, and all of that will be put into the Patreon bonus content. But if you want to hear me yell about Mr. Toad and more, patreon.com slash podcast. Um, no, like, Wind is fine, and then Sleepy Hollow, uh, I found myself having a hard time this time. Oh, interesting. Because, like, I I always knew that there was this here, but it just felt particularly striking to me just how unintentionally malicious some of the jokes are to some people. Sure. And I just was, like, having a hard time with that. I was like, why are we being so mean to this cute little woman in her green dress? Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, she's fat. What? A curse. Sure. Yeah. So just feeling kind of just, yeah. But I will say as soon as Legend of Sleepy Hollow gets to Ichabod walking home at night, mm-hmm. uh, it's great. Right. Yeah. Which is why we have it on the podcast. <laughs> so I kind of feel like plot summaries are almost redundant here because like, I, I think some changes were made to Wind in the Willows, but like Legend of Sleepy Hollow is basically just straight up 
the story. Like there's a difference in emphasis because they're going for comedy. Yeah. Yeah. And visual humor. And it's very cartoony. Both segments are very cartoony, but it's not like they made a lot of like changes. Like this just is the story. I think the only, um, you know, objection you could raise about the legend of sleepy hollow adaptation is one of like tone. Like maybe you want a different kind of emphasis, If you're a fan of Disney animation, one of the interesting things about these package films from the 40s is really seeing the way that, like, they're a weird half-step in quality, Mm -hmm. like, under the real feature films, but above the shorts. Like, the animation in the Wind in the Willow segment is, is certainly, like, better than your average, like, Pluto cartoon, but it's nowhere near as good as, like, what you'd see in like Bambi, which was just like this pinnacle of technical achievement for Disney at the time. And I think also maybe it's because of all of the visual gags, but there were certain moments where things were animated in a way that felt like Looney Tunes. Yeah. It's very cartoony. Um, I think people kind of forget that once upon a time, Disney cartoons were very cartoony when Chuck Jones brought squash and stretch to Warner Brothers with the Dover Boys, um, the producers didn't like it because it was something that Chuck had brought from time at Disney. Mm. Because the Disney characters used to be like rubber hose characters, right? And then it sort of was the production of like Snow White and Walt's like pursuit of like technical perfection that led Disney animation to become like more and more realistic where like the goal started to be like, we want it to like look like real people. And that's the other thing with both segments in this one is like, they are this weird halfway point between the features and the shorts because like Disney horses don't look like real horses and don't move like real horses. Cause real horses are really hard to fucking draw. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's also really interesting looking, like comparing Toad and Ichabod mm. together because Toad was made, like you said, like 1938 or something like that. And Ichabod was made in this decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see a change in the animation style more than just because we're not following anthropomorphized animals right um but also in the way that people are drawn and work even just background characters compared to the background people that we see in toad yeah i think that wind in the willows is closer in style to the disney shorts and legend of sleepy hollow is closer in style to the disney features um you know brom bones looks like gaston I was thinking he he also kind of looks like the Huntsman from Snow White. Yeah, a little bit. What's funny is that this is also like before the Disney Davy Crockett TV show, but like he also looks like that. Um, I think if you want to talk about the difference in style between like how the features were done and how the shorts were done, just as a stylistic thing, the Headless Horseman's horse is a Disney feature film horse And Ichabod Crane's horse is a Disney shorts horse because one of these is a horse and the other is a cartoon horse, you know? Yeah, Ichabod's horse is closer to Cyril than to a real horse. Yes, exactly. But yeah, like in Wind in the Willows, there's moments where like they aren't doing full lip sync 
yeah. for the dialogue. And like, yeah, there's this squash and stretch to the characters. The character of Winky looks like a Looney Tunes character. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's much more cartoony. Legend of Sleepy Hollow is also cartoony, but I think it feels more like what a modern audience expects from Disney. Well, it's only cartoony when we're doing the physical gags. Yes. But particularly, really, only for Ichabod's physical appearance. Ichabod's physical appearance and, like, the... um, Green dress girl? Yes. I was going to say, though, like, the the slapstick with, like, him and Brom Bones were, like... Yeah, the physical comedy. Yeah, yeah, where he gets, like, smashed into a wall flat kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, at one point he looks like... um, like video game. He looks like a Minecraft guy because yeah. he got smashed into a wall. So let's talk about Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ichabod is not so weird looking in the story, but he is described similarly. It's just particularly enhanced for a visual medium yeah. here. But boy, does Bing Crosby really just like rub in that Ichabod Crane is just like the ugliest looking motherfucker you've ever seen. It creates like a weird um, disconnect. Disconnect. Why people and particularly all the women of this town are interested in him. Yeah. Like you kind of get the idea that it's because like he's cultured and isn't like a hillbilly kind of guy. Like he, he has education and he's well dressed and stuff, but yeah, they go out of his way to make him look weird. Bing on the soundtrack is just being like, look at, look at this fucking nerd. Uh, like you get the feeling that like Bing's on Brom Bones side. Absolutely. Um, the other thing that's weird is, and I guess it's supposed to be like a joke on like his pay being bad as a teacher or something. But like, there's this like Ichabod in this cartoon is like shaggy in Scooby-Doo in his ability to like pick up like an entire buffet tables worth of food in like two hands and just, Oh, it all down in his mouth in like a second, even though he's like this total string bean. Yeah. That's weird to me. Yeah. Like, so that's from what I can tell. Uh, I believe that that's brought into this cartoon. It's in the book that Ichabod Crane gets cozy with like the families of this town and particularly the women, but it's Mm -hmm. always kind of portrayed as like, not that he's a womanizer, but he enjoys the company of women. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's a a dandy. dandy. And here it's like as if Disney Studios was like, we're not ready to talk about gay people. So we'll just make it so he's hungry. Well, okay, I got the sense it was that we don't want to talk about the fact that he's trying to like get laid, like that he's looking for a wife, right? Like eventually that becomes obvious with when Katrina comes in. But like, yeah, there's this kind of like moment on the soundtrack when the Rhythmares are talking about like, Ichabod being a ladies man but the animation is always showing us that like the reason he hangs out with women is for their cooking yeah and even when Katrina comes in like Katrina Van Tassels is very sexualized by the standards of a 1949 cartoon and also does not have any lines or any voice at all right so I was gonna I was wondering if you were gonna bring that up as a problem because it does feel really weird from a modern audience perspective that like she has no uh character basically yeah um the basis of her character is that she likes the attention of guys and she's only letting Ichabod go around her to make Brom jealous yeah you you kind of get this like this interpretation of the story is 
you get less of a sense of Brom Bones as a villain and more of a sense of Katrina as a villain because she's kind of being portrayed as like playing men against each other because it amuses her that she's like the richest and also prettiest woman in this whole town and she can do that. But it also, no one here is like the uh, golden hearted protagonist either. Yeah, no one here is a good person. Ichabod is like, oh yeah, she's beautiful, but her money though. Yeah, so that's what I kind of wanted to bring up is that like, although the animators be horny, as all animators have always been all through time, um, the actual like text of the cartoon is always like, ah yes, Katrina, she has such big tracts of land like and then shows the fields of golden wheat yeah yeah like so it's it's like disney doesn't want to commit to admitting that people want to have sex so it's like yeah ichabod likes women for their their cooking and their money but they're still out here (laughs) giving katrina van tassel's um the most cleavage that I feel like you could get away with in 1949 more cleavage than I feel like you could get away with in live action in 1949. The smallest fucking waist. Smaller than her neck. Yeah. This is, this woman is played by Jessica rabbit. Just like in <laughs> She's 1700s. She's not bad. She's just drawn that way. Right. Exactly. In like 1700s clothes. I do feel like the thing with Katrina not having dialogue and not having a voice is because much more than the Wind in the Willows segment, the Legend of Sleepy Hollow segment is really structured as Bing Crosby's telling us the story. Like he's yeah. doing the narration, he's singing the songs, he's the voice of Ichabod, he's the voice of Brahm. It really only falls apart with the Headless Horseman, who he is not voicing. No, it falls apart because Green Dress Girl gets to like have her voice. She doesn't say anything, but she's giggling enthusiastically <laughs> as she gets to dance. Right. And it's It's she, treated more like sound effect though. Yes. But it's just like so Katrina doesn't have any like oops. She right. doesn't have any like oh. She doesn't have any sound to her whatsoever, which I, is just like makes her more of one dimensional than just like the two dimension of an animation. I think um, one of the things that I noticed watching it was again, speaking to that like midpoint in quality between the shorts and the features is sound effects are not consistent. So like sometimes people have footsteps, sometimes they don't. Sometimes everything is voiced. Sometimes it's not like, it's it's sort of in and out whether we're actually doing sounds for things or not. Mm-hmm. The place where we absolutely get sound effects is in the spooky bit because they create an atmosphere um, with the visuals, with the sound design and everything. I'm talking in the lead up to the horsemen showing up. Um, I think it's clear that like the animators and other filmmakers understood that the spooky bit is the like the draw here yeah it's the showpiece of what we're doing yeah and uh it's it's why i like watching this even as much as i have a hard time with the rest of it you know Mm -hmm. the animation really kicks it up into high gear the lighting on the horseman and his horse like the horse has red eyes and is full black with like bright white lighting for like highlights that don't 
extend beyond the horse and the figure? No, the horseman, like, so really quite literally, the headless horseman is animated like he's in a Disney feature film and Ichabod is animated like he's in a Disney cartoon short because that kind of like edge lighting, lighting with light sources is not something you ever see on like Mickey Mouse or Pete or whatever. But it is a style of animation that you see in the feature films if you think of like Bambi. Yeah, even the evil witch. Yeah. Evil queen. Yeah, exactly. Like that lighting with edge lighting, like the headless horseman hangs out with the villains from Disney movies, <laughs> right? And like, yeah, he's animated in a totally different style. And it's really interesting because it gives it a really weird effect. Like it, I, I guess it kind of, it signals both that he is supernatural, but also that like he's serious. Like the, yeah. the, the cartoon has become serious business now, you know? Absolutely. He's um, got realistic proportions. <laughs> yeah. I always, I don't know why, but I always think of the cattails banging mm. against the log. That's a really good gag. Yeah. I, I love that gag. <laughs> um, I guess because coconuts aren't in America. Right. In the <laughs> 1700s anyway. Sparrows can fly across the Atlantic. <laughs> right. Yeah. What do you think about the the end? Like not counting the fact that I said that the story itself, as written by Washington hmm. Irving, heavily implies Brom is the Headless Horseman. What do you think happened? So, I mean, I, from the time I was a kid, like, understood that Brom was the Headless Horseman. In my mind, I think the cartoon makes a mistake. Hmm. I think it pulls its punches right at the end in a way that, you know, feels typical for Disney, but... I think undercuts it too much, which is that like we see the broken pumpkin and the hat and Bing Crosby being like, and all they found was, you know, and I don't know why Bing Crosby sounds like Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> I was going to say. Um, boom, 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 boom. Um, but like, then he immediately goes into, you know, there were rumors that Ichabod Crane showed up somewhere in upstate New York, like married with kids, which I think is in the story. And then he goes from there to like, you know, but the townsfolk, they all knew that the headless horseman had fucking, you know, taken him. And we also see like Brom get married to Katrina, which I think happens in the short story as well. I think we shouldn't have seen the visual of Ichabod with his family of little Ichabod children with identical hair. I think the visual of that shouldn't have happened. I think we could have gotten in the, in the narration, Bing Crosby being like, yeah, some people think he got married. Other people think that his soul was taken, but because we see one of those, that sort of in the terms of like movie making, that's showing us that's reality. He definitely survived. He definitely got married and had a bunch of weird little looking kids. Um, I think we should have seen Brahm and Katrina get married like that little bit. And we should have gotten narration to the effect of like, some people think Ichabod lived. Other people think he, you know, went to hell. Um, <laughs> because I think it undercuts it a little too much that like, Ooh, what really happened? Cause when you show something, it becomes real in a movie. Yeah, I think I agree, but I will say, I don't think the goal of this segment of sleepy hollow mm -hmm was ever to be as scary as you would want it to be. Yeah, it's supposed to be fun, right, for kids. Yeah, like they were always going to pull their punches, 
Um, and you see that from like, you know, we, we get the introduction to the town and it's like, oh, it's spooky. And then look at this motherfucker walking yeah. down the street with like these knobby legs. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, Disney animators have always been really good at scary, though. Yeah. Like going back to like Snow White, like I know so many kids who, who when they were kids would either fast forward through or not look at the TV during the bit in Snow White where she gets like lost in the spooky woods, which is yeah. very similar to the sequence here where it's like, oh, that thing grabbing you was just a tree or whatever. Like Disney's always been really good at scaring children. And it's really just like how they decide to offset that. Yeah. Right. And with like Snow White, it's she's fine. And also all the animal all the animals love her. And with like Hunchback and Notre Dame, it's like, right, but there's these talking gargoyles making fart jokes. So you're fine. Like there's different ways that they offset it over time. And here um, it's with like, look at this goofy motherfucker. Um, <laughs> what did you think of the songs? Okay. I love Brahms song. Yeah. When he's singing about the headless horseman. Right. Yeah. I love that sequence. Yeah. When, when all the spooks get together for a midnight jamboree. Yeah, and like everyone coming around and singing along too, it, it, it implies that like, oh yeah, this is a story we tell all the time Yes, yeah. on like winter nights like this. And Ichabod's the only one who's like really freaked out. I really like the implication of all that. Yeah, it's very, um, it has the same atmosphere as like Gaston's um, self-aggrandizing song in Beauty and the Beast where it's just like, the whole town knows this song. Yeah. Um, I also for the most part, enjoy the songs in both segments because there there are some songs in, in Toad. Um, I like the song when he, he's singing with Cyril as so they go through the countryside. The as much as, like, yes, I hate it, but I do enjoy the song. So the thing about that song, which is, um, you know, we're, we're merrily, merrily, merrily on our way to nowhere in particular, is the music from that song gets, like, reused throughout the score of the segment and, like, people hum bars or, like, sing a few lines here and there. And it just feels so it's it really feels like a Disney song, which makes sense because it's written by Disney musicians. Um, And it just for me, at least, it's like the fetch of Disney songs. Like it it really feels like it's trying too hard to be a thing like it's just like, yeah, everybody's going to come out of the theater singing about how we're merrily, 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 merrily on our way to nowhere in particular. And I just don't like it and i think the reason i don't like the song is because the only memorable lyric is like the hook and then the rest of it that's all about like through Dovershire and devonshire and it's just like a list of place names in england that is like not memorable at all no they mix it up they're like to devonshire will not be sure like they they mix up words and stuff yeah to have some wordplay but it has the same kind of feeling of the whole rest of the segment as being like half finished sure where i will like, agree where like someone came up with like a decent hook and then like they just don't have a full song there whereas like i really like the songs in legend of sleepy hollow because they got some popular songwriters in to come and like do the do the music and so they're like really catchy like i just i i always have that like ichabod and mr toad do 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 like i don't know it's it's very catchy the, the whole way that like the sleepy hollow segment is sort of like half sung half narrated like bing will go in and out of like song and narration as it continues to go and i'm just sitting here being like 
they sold an album of this. Like there oh, had to have been like a little 78 and then you got like a little picture book yeah. with it or something. Like definitely. Absolutely. Capitalists all the way through both Bing Crosby and Disney. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. So I like Legend of Sleepy Hollow more. I get the sense that you do too, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, they're, they're fun. They're fine. They're like, you know, good to watch with your kids. Um, like there's some, you know, like you said, like Katrina doesn't get any lines. The fat green dress girl is like kind of like weirdly mistreated in a way that like, yes, like fat phobia stuff is like a huge part of culture even till now. But like she waves at Brom and he goes, oh, yeah. Ichabod doesn't have a problem with her. What's weird about that character is I'm sure people throughout time since this came out have been like, oh, that's mean. But I feel like now in 2022, it doesn't just feel like, oh, that's mean. I think if you showed this to like a kid now, just the concept that we'd be making fun of that character would feel weird and off yeah. because our culture has sort of swung around to like kind of being into bigger ladies i guess in a way <laughs> i don't know about necessarily that but i think so she's here to be made fun of to mm-hmm. keep us you know engaged and laughing as brahm tries to cut in between ichabod and katrina yeah and there are different ways that that comedy is achieved during sequences like that in movies coming out today right and i think that's where the disconnect would be for someone watching this like who's like a kid watching this being like why are we laughing at this because it doesn't match what i know well and like the other thing is like her character design is kind of cute yeah i always really liked her like she's really cute and like she's very um genuine and kind of like excited and she's so happy that she's getting to dance with Brom. So it really makes it feel like doubly mean. Like yeah, I feel like, like to, malicious to an extent. Yeah. Like I feel like today that character would maybe be like gross and like kind of um, unpleasant and, and maybe like more of a sense of like, they're just kind of like skeevy and creepy like as a person and like uncomfortable to be around rather than this person who's just like, just happy to be here, you know? Um, but yeah, I think there's, there's stuff about legend of sleepy hollow that like feels off for a modern audience, but I don't think there's anything in the movie as a whole where I'd be like, Ooh, you should really not show that one to your kids. Like I think overall this movie is still a fun one to Mm -hmm. like watch with your kids. Well, folks, I hope you have enjoyed this horror adjacent bonus episode for the month of October. Uh, If you want to see the options for November's episode, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast. It's looking like Over the Garden Wall will win, but, you know, I'm still holding out for Rudy. (laughs) Sarah went with, like, a these movies have fall vibes to me. Yeah. She went with a very loose definition of horror adjacent and a very loose definition of movie as well. What? Because Over the Garden Wall is a 10-episode cartoon miniseries. Yeah, but everyone watches it as one thing, Ben. Sure. Um, But yeah, it looks like that's winning in a landslide. Uh, So we'll have, like, probably, most likely, more animation talk 
for you next month. If you want to get in touch about this or any other episode, you can reach us through ScreamScenePodcast.com, over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com, or over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. Thanks so much for listening. Bye! Bye!